Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This podcast takes a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. Please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks, a short flyover summary of the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Ether, Chapter 7 Well, as we begin this chapter, we know that the Jaredite migration to the Promised Land is now complete. The arduous 344-day sea voyage that was recorded in the previous chapter is now complete. And we read there in verse 12 that the Jaredites did land upon the shore of the Promised Land. And when they had set their feet upon the shores of the Promised Land, they bowed themselves down upon the face of the land and did humble themselves before the Lord and had shed tears of joy before the Lord because of the multitude of his tender mercies over them. And as we know from the previous chapter, the story of a new generation of Jaredites has begun. It was very simply stated in verse 29 of the previous chapter that Jared died and his brother also. So with the death of Jared and his brother, it's time for a new generation of leadership. And we know also, because of Ether chapter 6, what form of government will be in force for these people moving forward. And most unfortunately, we will know that that will be a kingship. We read this exchange in Ether chapter 6 when the people expressed this desire for a king to Jared and his brother. Verse 22 said, And it came to pass that the people desired of them that they should anoint one of their sons to be a king over them. And now behold, this was grievous unto them. And the brother of Jared said unto them, Surely this thing leadeth into captivity. When we consider other scriptural accounts of the Lord's people desiring a king, we find the same reticent response from the prophet of the people. At the end of the Israelite exile on the Sinai Peninsula, and once they had established themselves in Canaan after the the reign of many judges, they approached the prophet Samuel with this very same desire. We can read of this, and in fact, in this passage, we will see the prophet Samuel's reticence once again. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, that passage says, And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards, and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maidservants, and your goodliest young men, and your asses, and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day, because of your king which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Well, as we know, despite Samuel's objections, the Israelites did receive a king. 
And there was a succession of three kings in the nation of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Many of Samuel's concerns were already observable during this prosperous era for the Israelites. But it's after this era where we can especially see the devolution in Israelite society and the denigration of the values that they had so carefully cultivated during their period of exile. During this time, we can see that when a king was wicked, and that was the case in most all instances in the northern kingdom and also in the southern kingdom of Judah, there was a noticeable trickle-down effect from that central figure's wickedness uh, down to the common people. This was observed in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 25-26, through 26, uh, when speaking of the king Amri. It says, But Amri wrought evil in the eyes of the Lord, and did worse than all that were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and in his sin wherewith he made Israel to sin to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. So there's a principle at play there. It's a principle that was articulated really beautifully by Mormon in Alma chapter 46, verse 9, when he said, Yea, and we also see the great wickedness one very wicked man can cause to take place among the children of men. Proverbs 16, verse 12 says, It is an abomination to kings to commit wickedness, for the throne is established by righteousness. When we think of Book of Mormon teachings on this subject, we can't help but think of Mosiah chapter 29. This was a time of great unity when Alma and his people had found their way back to the land of Zarahemla, and where Limhi and his people had also uh, completed their exilic journey, we might say, through the wilderness and to the land of Zarahemla. When these two groups came to the land of Zarahemla, there was already a king in place, And this, of course, was the very righteous King Mosiah, who ruled over the Mulekites and the Nephites in that region. And, of course, Limhi and his exiles, as well as Alma and his exiles, very happily accepted Mosiah's reign. However, in his wisdom, as Mosiah looked into the future, he could see that a different form of leadership would better facilitate the Lord's purposes. As Mosiah told the people, in verses 16 through 23 of Mosiah chapter 29. Now I say unto you that because all men are not just, it is not expedient that ye should have a king or kings to rule over you. So these people were living in an exceptional era, having had the kingly leadership of Mosiah one, then of the great King Benjamin, and then of King Mosiah. These were exceptional figures, to be sure. It may have felt normal to these people, but Mosiah, again, in his wisdom, knew that it wouldn't always be like this when kings ruled the Nephites. And so it's here that he's reminding the people that all men are not just. Verse 17, For behold, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed? Yea, and what great destruction! Yea, remember King Noah, his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. So in attendance at Mosiah's sermon, we would have Alma's group, And we would also have Limhi's group. And Mosiah's words would have especially resonated with them, as they were acutely aware of the effects of King Noah's wickedness. Behold, King Mosiah continues, what great destruction did come upon them. And also because of their iniquities, they were brought into bondage. And were it not for the interposition of their all-wise creator, and this because of their sincere repentance, they must unavoidably remain in bondage until now. Imagine again, 
these exiles that had shortly returned to Zarahemla who were nodding their heads in agreement as King Mosiah is saying this. But behold, he did deliver them because they did humble themselves before him. And because they cried mightily unto him, he did deliver them out of bondage. And thus doth the Lord work with his power in all cases among the children of men, extending the arm of mercy towards them that put their trust in him. And behold, now I say unto you, ye cannot dethrone an iniquitous king, save it be through much contention and the shedding of much blood. For behold, he has his friends in iniquity, and he keepeth his guards about him, and he teareth up the laws of those who have reigned in righteousness before him, and he trampleth under his feet the commandments of God. So simply stated, the authoritarian control of a king can be used for great good, but can very quickly be used for great wickedness. And Mosiah concludes by saying this in verse 23 of Mosiah chapter 29, And he enacteth laws and sendeth them forth among his people, yea, laws after the manner of his own wickedness. And whosoever doth not obey his laws, he causeth to be destroyed. And whosoever doth rebel against him, he will send his armies against them to war, and if he can, he will destroy them. And thus an unrighteous king doth pervert the ways of all righteousness. So, of course, here the main precedent mentioned by King Mosiah is the story of the wicked King Noah. Uh, He had the brass plates as well, though, so it's reasonable to guess that he was aware of the Samuel account as well. This cautionary tale of King Noah was lived experience, particularly for Alma the Elder. And when he and his group of converts uh, left the land of Mormon and uh, ultimately settled in the land of Helam, He reminded his small settlement of the perils of kingship, citing the same cautionary tale of the story of King Noah. He said in Mosiah chapter 23, verses 8 through 10, Nevertheless, if it were possible that ye could always have just men to be your kings, it would be well for you to have a king. But remember the iniquity of King Noah and his priests, and I myself was caught in a snare, remembering here that Alma was one of those priests and did many things which were abominable in the sight of the Lord, which caused me sore repentance. As we return to Ether chapter 7 and consider uh, this new beginning in the promised land, and how unfortunately it is that these people will begin with this system of government, with kings, we can notice a couple interesting exceptions, I think, to the accounts that I've just read from. The first is that this is such an ancient people that the brother of Jared, in expressing his concern about a kingship, couldn't draw upon any of the scriptural precedents that uh, I've just read from. Yet he still had a very clear aversion to this system of government. In fact, later in Ether chapter 6, the brother of Jared's oldest son, named Pagag, P-A-G-A-G, quoted his father when they wanted to constrain Pagag to be the king, quoted the brother of Jared in saying, and he commanded them that they should constrain no man to be their king. So how it is that the brother of Jared came by this same reticence that Mosiah had, that Alma had, and that most certainly the prophet Samuel had, we don't know for sure. Fundamentally, of course, it was wisdom that was given to him from the Lord. The other interesting exception, I think, uh, as we look at this very early account of a people who want a king and of a prophet who resists that desire, is that in this case, the Jaredites are not a minority faction who lives among invading enemies, who seeks protection from them. According to what we've read so far in the book of Ether, these are the only people present in the promised land. So they don't seem to want a king for the same reasons that other peoples in Scripture wanted a king. 
what we can see then was that this was the decision of a collective body of people who felt, even against the expressed wishes of their prophet, that the rule of a king was their best course moving forward. As we will discover in this chapter, it was not. The brother of Jared was abundantly correct in his reservations about the damage that a kingly government would do. I think this can serve as a cautionary tale for us. Anytime when we see that a course is decided upon by the collective body of society that runs counter to the counsel of a prophet, we know that similar troubles await for us. Well, with those introductory thoughts... And with the knowledge that that's how things will unfold between Ether chapter 7, particularly, and through Ether chapter 11, that we will run through this succession of Jaredite kings in those chapters, let's look at the structure of Ether chapter 7. This chapter has 27 verses. In verses 1 and 2, we find that King Orihah, to our great relief, does reign in righteousness. We wondered about Oriha at the end of the previous chapter because he was the one willing son uh, when all other sons were petitioned to be the king. Oriha was the only son that was willing to shoulder this position. So we're relieved to see that he did rule in righteousness. In verse 3, we read that his son Kib succeeds him. By the time we come to this generation, the trouble has already begun. And in fact, in verse 5, the brother of Jared will be referenced. The narrator will say, which brought to pass the saying of the brother of Jared, that they would be brought into captivity. So the context here is that in verses 4 through 7, the next generation, the son of Kib, whose name is Korahor, well, he rebels against his father, uh, so much so that he defects to the land of Nehor, and he draws many people away with him, gathers his own army, then returns to the capital city, the land of Moron, and captures the king, his father, Kib. In verses 8 and 9, we'll read that Kib, again, who is the captive king and the father of Korahor, he begets Shul. So that would make Shul Korahor's brother. And Shul conspires to overthrow Korahor, or to overthrow his brother, who's done so much harm. So Shul gathers an army. He does successfully defeat Korahor, and restores the kingdom to his father, Kib. As we might expect then, in verses 10 through 12, Shul becomes Kib's successor in the land of Moron, the capital city, and Shul does reign in righteousness, so we're very happy to see that. This particular conflict between Shul and his brother Korahor, however, does carry into the next generation, and Korahor's son Noah draws many away, and we see this happening in verses 13 through 16. He becomes king over his own defectors during this time. And then in verse 17, it becomes so extreme that Noah actually captures his uncle Shul, and he carries him captive into the land of Moron. So as we look at this next generation, we will wonder then if Shul's sons will rise up against Korahor's son, Noah. And we find that this is the case in verses 18 through 20. Shul's sons do slay Noah, their cousin, And they rescue their father, Shul, and they restore him to his throne. And uh, then Noah's son, Kohor, assumes Noah's throne. Uh, So there still is another kingdom, unfortunately. So this creates a situation where the country is divided into these two kingdoms. Kohor sits upon Noah's throne, and Shul sits upon his in Moron. If we have these two competing kingdoms, then we can expect conflict. That is what we see in verse 21, and it's initiated 
by the son of Noah, Kohor. Shul's army defeats Kohor in this instance. And so then things move into the next generation. And in verse 22, we can see that Kohor's successor, who is Nimrod, uh, handles things differently. And instead of giving battle to Shul's kingdom in the land of Moron, he relinquishes his kingdom to Shul. So we'll read of that in verse 22. Then as we look at the structure of this chapter, we can see that Moroni's point in abridging this record is very much the same as Mormon's point as he abridged the, the Nephite record. And that is to explain the relationship between these people and their God. So he's showing us the trouble that this succession of kings is causing the people and the cycle of righteousness and wickedness that they vacillate between. And we'll see this as we move through these chapters in the book of Ether. But in the final verses of this chapter, verses 23 through 27, Moroni will speak of the reception of the people to the prophets that were in the land during this time. Thankfully, they were protected by King Shul, and that is made very clear in this passage. However, the people in general reviled the prophets. Uh, However, because of Shul's uh, protection of the prophets, uh, this attitude finally holds sway among the people, and they repent. And in fact, it even tells us that they prosper in this section. And uh, then as we come to the end of this, we return back to this narrative of the succession of kings and discover that Shul's righteous reign comes to an end. So that's what verse 27 will bring us to. Let's return now to verse 1 for a reading. And it came to pass that Orihah did execute judgment upon the land in righteousness all his days, whose days were exceedingly many. Now remember again, for continuity's sake, that at the end of the previous chapter, there were no kings, the ruler of the land seemed to be Jared himself, and the prophet of the land seemed to be his brother. And so now the people desire that they have this new governmental system, and their first king will be Orihah. So we're happy to read here in verse 1 that Orihah reigned in righteousness, and that his days were many. Now we've learned in verse 2 that he had a great posterity, and he begat sons and daughters, yea, he begat thirty and one among whom were twenty and three sons. Verse 3, And it came to pass that he also begat Kib in his old age. And it came to pass that Kib reigned in his stead, and Kib begat Kohor. So here is the first transition into a new king. We can guess that Orihah would have crossed the waters in the barges, but uh, his son Kib may not have. So we may be moving into the first generation that actually had not experienced this arduous exile that we read about in the beginning of the book of Ether under the leadership of Jared and his brother. Verse 4, And when Korahor was thirty and two years old, he rebelled against his father. Remember that the king now is Kib, but now we're going to read this subplot about his son Korahor. It already doesn't bode well because of the negative associations we have with the name Korahor. So Korahor does rebel against his father Kib. He uh, takes a faction to the land of Nehor, and then it says, He begat sons and daughters, and they became exceedingly fair, wherefore Korahor drew many people away after him. Verse 5, And when he had gathered together an army, he came up unto the land of Moron, where the king dwelt, and took him captive, which brought to pass the saying of the brother of Jared, that they would be brought into captivity. Douglas Brindley has written, As they grew in number, the people desired a king, in spite of the objectives of the brother of Jared who cautioned them that having a king would not be wise in the long run. At a much later date, Mosiah the Nephite seer also warned the Nephites of the dangers of a kingship. Under Mosiah's wise counsel, and after he had translated the account of the Jaredites, 
the Nephites changed their form of government to judges rather than kings. That's an important point that I did not mention uh, in the introduction to this chapter. I talked about Mosiah's wisdom in telling the people that a king would not be best for them. What I failed to mention that Brianley points out here is that Mosiah had just translated the Jaredite plates. So that experience for King Mosiah would have left an indelible impression upon his soul, and he would have had very strong feelings because of his translation of the Jaredite record about the perils of appointing a king. Verse 6, Now the land of Moron, where the king dwelt, was near the land which is called Desolation by the Nephites. So Moroni is uh, creating that geographic tie-in for us. Verse 7, And it came to pass that Kib dwelt in captivity, and his people under Korahor his son, until he became exceedingly old. So Orihah reigned in righteousness, and there was relative freedom among the people in the land of Moron. But we can see that in just the next generation, his son Kib dwelt in captivity. Hugh Nibley has written in Lehi in the Desert, Such is the practice, mentioned many times in the book, of keeping a king prisoner throughout his entire lifetime. And that is a pattern we'll see throughout these chapters in Ether. Allowing him to beget and raise a family in captivity, even though the sons, thus brought up, would be almost sure to seek the vengeance of their parent and power for themselves upon coming of age. It seems to us a perfectly ridiculous system, yet it is in accordance with the immemorial Asiatic usage. So Nibley is saying a couple interesting things there, I think. One is, of course, that there's a a, a layer of sophistication here because this account is uh, very Asiatic in its nature. Uh, and the other is that there's this this custom of this captive king raising sons who then have the potential of rising up against their captors. Nibley calls this a perfectly ridiculous system because one would guess that the wicked captors of these kingly sons would be inclined to nip this kingly succession in the bud by destroying these potential kingly successors. Well, the end of verse 7 will tell us about this potential kingly successor that was raised in captivity. This was Shul, and uh, the rest of this chapter will deal with the reign of Shul, really. Uh, So the end of this verse says, Nevertheless, Kib begat Shul in his old age, while he was yet in captivity. And it came to pass that Shul was angry with his brother. And Shul waxed strong and became mighty as to the strength of a man. And he was also mighty in judgment. So as Nibley rightly points out, Shul is allowed to live. And he's allowed to prosper to enough of a degree while he was in captivity to become formidable to his captors. Again, he is a mighty man as to the strength of a man and he's mighty in judgment. So Shul is formidable. Verse 9, Wherefore he came to the hill Ephraim, and he did molten out of the hill, and made swords out of steel for those whom he had drawn away with him. And after he had armed them with swords, he returned to the city Nehor, and gave battle unto his brother Korahor, by which means he obtained the kingdom and restored it unto his father Kib. Well, we've read so much in the Book of Mormon account as we come all the way up to Ether chapter 7, and now we're back to warring factions once again. When we look at things chronologically, this is the first variation in this long, long theme of war that carries throughout the entire Book of Mormon narrative. So the hope here for us as readers is that Shul will prevail over his brother Korahor and that he will restore his father Kib to the throne. And that is what we'll read in just a moment. 
First, however, here's a piece of commentary from Elder D. Todd Christofferson. This was a BYU-Idaho address in 2013. It's entitled, The Prophet Joseph Smith. Very interestingly here, Elder Christofferson chooses to discuss in this devotional the matter of uh, swords and forging them out of steel. Elder Christofferson says, It seems evident, notes one recent authority, that by the beginning of the 10th century B.C., blacksmiths were intentionally stealing iron. In 1987, the Enzyme reported that archaeologists had unearthed a long steel sword near Jericho, dating back to the late 7th century B.C., probably to the reign of King Josiah, who died shortly before Lehi began to prophesy. This sword is now on display at Jerusalem's Israel Museum. The museum's explanatory sign reads in part, The sword is made of iron hardened into steel, attesting to substantial metallurgical know-how. Matthew Roper, in a Fair Mormon blog on June 17th of 2013, writes about a criticism repeated many times over the years about the mention of steel in the Book of Mormon. In 1884, one critic wrote, Laban's sword was steel, when it is a notorious fact that the Israelites knew nothing of steel for hundreds of years afterwards. Who but as ignorant a person as Rigdon would have perpetuated all these blunders? More recently, Thomas O'Day in 1957 stated, Every commentator on the Book of Mormon has pointed out the many cultural and historical anachronisms, such as the steel sword of Laban in 600 B.C. We had no answer to these critics at that time. But as often happens in these matters, new discoveries in later years shed new light. Roper reports, it is increasingly apparent that the practice of hardening iron through deliberate carburization, quenching, and tempering was well known to the ancient world from which Nephi came. So now returning to the story, uh, thanks to the efforts of Shul, his father Kib is restored to the throne. Verse 10, And now because of the thing which Shul had done, his father bestowed upon him the kingdom, therefore he began to reign in the stead of his father. So we would expect that. Shul now becomes the king. And it came to pass that he did execute judgment and righteousness, and he did spread his kingdom upon all the face of the land, for the people had become exceedingly numerous. And it came to pass that Shul also begat many sons and daughters. So it would seem that after this unpleasant diversion, the kingship of Orihah is able to continue through the auspices of his grandson, Shul, and that the era of peace and prosperity that was anticipated by the Jaredites under Orihah's rule can now continue unimpeded, at least we hope, under Shul's reign. However, this conflict between Shul and his brother Korahor is not over. It will manifest in the next generation. So this will manifest with Noah, Korahor's son. Verse 13, And Korahor repented of the many evils which he had done. Remember that in this conflict, Shul did not destroy Korahor. That's kind of, there's some reciprocity there because Korahor clearly allowed Shul to live when he was in captivity. So Shul allowed Korhor to live. So Korhor, in fact, repented of the many evils which he had done, wherefore Shul gave him power in his kingdom. Very interesting that Shul would do that. And it came to pass that Korhor had many sons and daughters, and among the sons of Korhor there was one whose name was Noah. And it came to pass that Noah rebelled against Shul, the king, and also his father Korhor, and drew away Korhor his brother, and also all his brethren, and many of the people. So quite sad that even though Korahor had repented of the evil that he had done, this tendency was still manifest in one of his children. Now verse 16 shows us that Noah was successful in this venture. 
and he gave battle unto Shul the king, in which he did obtain the land of their first inheritance, and he became a king over that part of the land. So, of course, we read about the land of their first inheritance in the previous chapter when the Jaredites arrived at the shores of the promised land. So that would have been hallowed ground to the Jaredites, and now Noah rules over this place. Noah gains enough power, in fact, as we'll find in verse 17, that he's able to capture the great king Shul. And it came to pass that he gave battle again unto Shul the king, and he took Shul the king and carried him away captive into Moron. We might already expect this as readers because of the pattern that's already being established in the narrative, but the only recourse that we can see for Shul is if his own sons rise up against his brother Korahor's sons. In other words, if Shul's sons are able to stop Noah in his unrighteous and oppressive reign. Verse 18, And it came to pass as he was about to put him to death, in other words, as Noah was about to put Shul to death, the sons of Shul crept into the house of Noah by night and slew him, and broke down the door of the prison and brought out their father, and placed him upon his throne in his own kingdom. So this time, and under this king Noah's rule, there was to be less mercy upon his kingly captors, and he was actually going to slay King Shul in this instance, but his sons were able to thwart that effort. Imagine again King Mosiah translating this record, and when things are really going south here, the name of the king in this instance as well is Noah. And then we have that passage in Mosiah chapter 29, where Mosiah speaks of the wickedness of King Noah. Of course, in that instance, it's the son of Zenith, that king, Noah. When we come to verse 19, we can see, unfortunately, that this does not bring an end to Noah's kingdom, even though his cousins have put him to death. Uh, Noah's son will then take over this kingdom. So there still are two competing kingdoms. Uh, verse 19, wherefore the son of Noah did build up his kingdom in his stead. Nevertheless, they did not gain any more power over Shul the king. And the people who were under the reign of Shul the king did prosper exceedingly and wax great. So the people under Shul's rule, with uh, rhyming unintended there, are able to come back to the business of prosperity. And in this relatively short period, at the end of verse 19, they do prosper exceedingly and wax great. However, there still is this other competing kingdom that is ruled by Noah's son. That's why we'll now read in verse 20 that, And the country was divided, and there were two kingdoms, the kingdom of Shul and the kingdom of Kohor, the son of Noah. So what's the name of Noah's son? It's Kohor. Hugh Nibley has written, You read your book of Ether, and you'll find the whole history is a tale of fierce and unrelenting struggle for power. It's dark with intrigue and violence, particularly of the Asiatic brand. When the rival for a kingdom is bested, he goes off by himself in the wilderness, bides his time, and gathers an army of outcasts. A grand cycle, running from unity of the nations to division and conflict, and hence to paralysis or extinction, is repeated at least a dozen times. And uh, how true that is, here we are at the beginning of this succession of kings in the book of Ether, in Ether chapter 7, and it will indeed be a wild ride as we go from here to the end of Ether chapter 11 in particular, and actually all the way to the end of the book. We'll have Moroni's incredible interlude, of course, in Ether chapter 12, and he does gear down a bit uh, when he comes to Ether uh, when he tells his story, but still, it's a topsy-turvy cycle, just as Nibley is saying, all the way to the end of the book of Ether. Well, now that Noah's son, Kohor, has been named, we can see in verse 21 that Kohor wants the same outcome that Noah had achieved. He wants to bring Shul into captivity and worse. So verse 21, And Kohor, the son of Noah, 
caused that his people should give battle unto Shul, in which Shul did beat them and slay Kohor. So that's how Kohor's story ends. Uh, He is not successful in that objective, and Shul is able to prevail. However, Kohor does have a successor, and that is his son Nimrod. We'll read of him in verse 22, but happily we'll see that Nimrod handles this conflict very differently. And now Kohor had a son who was called Nimrod, and Nimrod gave up the kingdom of Kohor unto Shul, and he did gain favor in the eyes of Shul. Wherefore Shul did bestow great favors upon him, and he did do in the kingdom of Shul according to his desires. So Nimrod's nature and behavior runs counter to that of his predecessors, and he's willing to unify with Shul, and in so doing he's given great privileges within the kingdom. Well, as we come to this point in the chapter, I think we can pause and think about the Jaredites that we knew prior to Ether chapter 7. There was the civic leadership of Jared, and there was the prophetic leadership of his brother. So we've been reading about the successors of Jared, in a sense, as we've gone through Ether chapter 7. Now, what about the prophetic successors of the brother of Jared? How are the prophets faring now that we're a few generations into this kingly succession? Well, here's the answer. Moroni provides us with this in verse 23. And also in the reign of Shul, there came prophets among the people who were sent from the Lord, prophesying that the wickedness and idolatry of the people was bringing a curse upon the land, and they should be destroyed if they did not repent. So notice that this is not just a curse upon the people if they did not repent, but it's a curse upon the land. Moroni was abundantly clear about the relationship between the people and their prosperity in the land in Ether chapter 2. So yet one more piece of evidence that the book of Ether in its 15 chapters is a very faithful microcosm of the entire Book of Mormon that we have already read. It conveys the same key messages, including this subthesis of the entire Book of Mormon, that inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. So the Lord is sending prophets to these people to intercede and uh, to try and slow this process of entropic decay among these people. President Henry B. Eyring once gave us this tremendous piece of insight about the role of prophets in society and about the way in which the people receive their warnings. He said, because the Lord is kind, he calls servants to warn people of danger. So President Eyring is saying it's not because the Lord is vindictive, or it's not because he's vengeful or unmerciful, it's because he's kind that he sends prophets among his people. Then he says, that call to warn is made harder and more important by the fact that the warnings of most worth are about dangers that people don't yet think are real. I think that's a stunning piece of insight from President Eyring. The warnings from prophets that are of most worth are about dangers that people don't yet think are real. Elder Robert D. Hales has written, Why do prophets proclaim unpopular commandments and call society to repentance for rejecting, modifying, and even ignoring the commandments? The reason is very simple. Upon receiving revelation, prophets have no choice but to proclaim and reaffirm that which God has given them to tell the world. Now in verse 24, we'll see how the people received these prophets. And it came to pass that the people did revile against the prophets and did mock them. And it came to pass that King Shul did execute judgment against all those who did revile against the prophets. So we've already had the sense that Shul was a righteous king, but we also have a sense from the narrative that the people were easily influenced by characters like Korahor and like Noah and like his son Kohor. 
so this suggests that the righteousness quotient of the people in general was somewhat low, and that's confirmed here, but we're happy to see that King Shul did protect the prophets in this instance. And so verse 25 teaches us that this had an effect upon the people ultimately. So verse 25, and he, meaning King Shul, did execute a law throughout all the land, which gave power unto the prophets that they should go whithersoever they would, and by this cause the people were brought unto repentance. And because the people did repent of their iniquities and idolatries, the Lord did spare them, and they began to prosper again in the land. And it came to pass that Shul begat sons and daughters in his old age. So now we're speaking broadly about the righteousness of the people and finding happily that they're shifting from a state of unrighteousness to a state of righteousness and prosperity because of the intervention of the Lord's prophets. And, of course, because of the rule of a righteous king, which comes to an end here in verse 27. And there were no more wars in the day of Shul. And he remembered the great things that the Lord had done for his fathers in bringing them across the great deep into the promised land. Wherefore, he did execute judgment and righteousness all his days. What was the key, then, for Shul and his righteousness? What was it that made him so? Well, we're taught here by Moroni that it was his remembrance of the captivity and the exile of his fathers and the way in which they were preserved. That's, of course, the same lesson that we see throughout the Book of Mormon. It's a lesson that we can look to in our own dispensation as well. Byron R. Merrill has written in a January 2000 Ensign article called They Wrote to Us as If We Were Present, Among the Jaredites, the people were brought unto repentance when the king protected the prophets. In contrast, when a later king did not protect the prophets, the people hardened their hearts and did reject all the words of the prophets. And we'll read of that in Ether chapter 11. With the result that the Spirit of the Lord had ceased striving with them, and Satan had full power over the hearts of the people. Then they reached the fullness of iniquity, which brought down upon them the fullness of the wrath of God. And by using the phrase, the fullness of iniquity, and telling the way that the the Jaredite story progresses as we come through the very end of the book of Ether, uh, Brother Merrill is pulling from that language that Moroni used in Ether chapter 2 when he talked about the people ripening in iniquity. Well, things were so good when the Jaredites arrived on the shores of the Promised Land and they gave thanks to the Lord for preserving them as they crossed the sea in their barges. We certainly felt the same way about Lehi and his family when they arrived at the shores of the Promised Land in 1 Nephi chapter 18. These were a humble people that had been protected by the Lord during an arduous sea voyage. That, of course, was their trial, and that was the trial of their generation. But as successive generations are introduced to us in the Book of Mormon narrative and in the narrative of the Book of Ether, their trial is of a different nature. Their task is to remember what it is that their fathers went through as they journeyed across the sea. Their trial or test is to remember the Lord God in their prosperity. That's a test, of course, that we today can relate with as we live in great prosperity. Well, now as we anticipate turning the page and moving into Ether chapter 8, we can rightly expect that there will be more stories of more kings. Some will be righteous, some will be wicked. There will be more prophets, some will be rejected, and some will not. But as this unfolds and we get into the specifics, we'll see that in Ether chapter 8, something very specific and dark takes place. It's the first, chronologically speaking, formation of a secret combination in the Book of Mormon, and it's brought into being through the suggestion of the daughter of Jared. So we have much to learn about there 
as we anticipate moving into Ether Chapter 8. For now, however, this brings us to the end of Ether Chapter 7. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. This podcast has recently reached 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners and help them in their experience with the Come Follow Me curriculum. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of scripture, as well as general conference addresses that come to mind, also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author, Jesus the Christ. I offer my witness that His attention is fixed upon us. He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.